Our scripture reading is from Mark, Mark chapter 12. It's printed there in your bulletin. A couple of things. The same people are having a conversation with Christ. It's the chief priest of the temple. It's the elders, portion of the Sanhedrin, the council that governs. And of course, scribes, doctors of the law, Pharisees, men that are experts in the scripture. They've made a committee and they've been following the Lord around every time they can. They've been confronting him these days as he's coming and going from the temple. This is in the last week of his life. He's facing his crucifixion. And uh, Jesus now addresses that group as well as the multitude that's standing there listening to Jesus teach. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and him they killed. So with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants And give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus often taught in parables, and there's a cluster of them at the beginning of Mark, talking about the kingdom of God, and then there's this parable toward the end. A parable, I believe every one of you have been to enough Bible studies to know that it's a very expansive way of speaking. It's a story. It's a fable. It might just be a proverb. It's the mashal in the Hebrew. It's the, it's the wise saying. It may be an extended metaphor. It usually is at least a simile always. Something is like something. And it may be an extended simile. So it's a very flexible uh, way of using language to get across a point. And parables are used, even Jesus said, to do two things. To reveal truth and to conceal truth. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, some of the parables of Jesus were to make truth known, to make it obvious. He would use a good comparison. He would use a good um, uh, analogy in a parable. Then there were times when he would tell parables that were uh, cryptic and hard to understand and maybe a little bit confusing. One of the things that's uh, interesting about a parable that the 
use of it and the study of it for so long has taught the scholars is that it's not necessarily every single detail of the story has to match up with something. There was a school of thought that used to say that, and so they would make these parables, the interpretation of them, walk on all fours. You know, just everything there had to, had to match up and work, and they would get into some uh, interesting interpretations of the words of Jesus. And it, with that in mind, we see that Jesus... Uh, while not making every detail line up in every way, at least draws from a heritage that he knew every man listening to him that were from the temple, the chief priest's family, the Herodian group, the Sadducees, as well as the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders, which was made up of both the council of Sadducees and some Pharisees as well. And then large numbers of the people. Having gone to synagogue all their life, they were familiar with the language of the Old Testament. Very, very familiar with it. So Jesus just pulled something out of the Old Testament to set up this particular parable. And while it doesn't fit in every detail, the gist of it, the drive of it, the theme of it is unmistakable. This is not a parable to conceal. This is a parable to reveal. This is a parable to make known something that is absolutely essential. And if there is a text for this parable, it's found in Isaiah 53, where it says that when Christ comes, He will be despised and rejected of men. Despised and rejected of men. And this parable describes that rejection. He finds the imagery for this particular parable Way back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, there's a fairly long chapter that divides easily uh, into two parts. And the first part of it is a song. It's one of those songs in Isaiah. It wouldn't be a bad idea to turn there because I'm going to read a good portion of it because I like the Bible to speak for itself as much as possible. So I'm going to read it and I want you to get the details and the gist of this parable in your mind because Jesus will build upon it in His parable. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5, and it's a song like the servant songs of Isaiah. Well, this is a vineyard song. This is a song about a vineyard. And so listen to the song. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning His vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. You see there Jesus set up the nature of this vineyard follows the same track of this song of how it was planted and it was protected with a hedge. There was a tower and there was a pit dug, a vat, to uh, produce the wine. Then uh, verse uh, 3 there in the song. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. I'll tell you something that's interesting about that. There's a lot of little details sometimes you'll miss. Isaiah wrote before the Assyrian conquest. This, the Assyrian conquest, 722 B.C., Sennacherib's army came down and, and, and took over the whole northern part, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and got all the way to the very city limits in the edge of Jerusalem. 
And there was a time, of course, when God spared Jerusalem. It was years later when the Babylonians came and Jerusalem was not spared. This time the Babylonians came and conquered uh, uh, Jerusalem and Judea. But notice this particular passage is speaking to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah. I don't think that's an accident because that's who's alive in the days of Jesus. The northern kingdom was never restored. The northern kingdom was dispersed and the best they could do was uh, remarry and bring people in and do all sorts of things that resulted in the, in the region of Samaria. And, but Judah was restored. The priesthood was restored. The temple was rebuilt. God had restored Judah, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem was restored in, uh, in the days before, long before Christ came to earth. So it's interesting that this particular passage could easily have been making a, a reference to the men of Israel. But it's the men of Judah. There were no more Judean men on the planet than this group of people. These were the rulers of Judah, the southern kingdom, the restored kingdom, and it addressed here in the parallel form, inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Jesus is in the heart of Jerusalem. He's in the temple courts uh, giving this parable. So uh, if there's a contemporaneous interpretation of this, the address was not forgotten or, or was not um, uh, uh, dawned unaware on the men. They knew what Jesus was talking about. Now the inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Jerusalem, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done it all? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Now the interesting thing here is the vineyard was expected to bring forth fruit. So Jesus is talking now to the husbandmen of the vineyard, the keepers of the vineyard, the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, and the fruitfulness that they would bring forth or fail to bring forth. And then we have his words of, of, of judgment in the song, beginning there again in, uh, in verse 5. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. This is precisely what Jesus is doing in this parable. He's telling the men of Jerusalem and Judah of his day, of his generation, the most critical generation in all of Israel's history, because this generation lived in the fullness of time. Israel had come through all of its history and now they were at that moment, that eschatological moment, that time in which God was going to settle things and bring things and bring in the Messiah and inaugurate the kingdom on earth and all the things that, that happened during the ministry of our Lord. But now the judgment. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned nor hoed but briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of the host is the house of Israel and the men of Judah at his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry or an absolute uh, um, famishing of the people. This is a song of judgment this is a song of reckoning and that's precisely what Jesus parable does he's talking about a, 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 an owner who had a 
a vineyard and he hired men to take care of it, tenant farmers, and he received his rents not only in money but in some of the fruit. And in some cases, that was it. They were almost like old-fashioned sharecroppers in the uh, early part of our nation's history. They shared what they had produced with the landowner. And the landowner sent someone to collect the rent. And instead of paying the rent, they began a series of murderous abuses. Uh, the parallel, by the way, the parallel passages are in, in Matthew 21 and in Luke 20. And there's a little bit of difference in the detail. One of them is that one of the things they did to these men when they come, it said they would beat them and they would uh, uh, send them away empty-handed. They would treat them shamelessly, shamefully, and uh, they would kill them. And others they beat and some they killed. And the other gospel says they would throw stones at them. They would stone them. Well, stoning was the means of execution in ancient Israel. And so there's some implication that they would wreak a punishment upon them that was somehow just. In other words, they had gone to the law courts and gotten some kind of verdict against these men. It might have been some uh, uh, law they had similar to our uh, rules of adverse possession or something like that. And so they had a lawful reason to cast a stone. In other words, they did everything they could do, twisting the law, threatening, murdering, uh, abusing, killing. And it even mentions here that they, that they would um, uh, abuse them in every possible way. Well, for about, about eight places in the New Testament, there's a passage that says something about Israel killed the prophets. And most of those sayings came from Jesus. Jesus accused the leaders of Israel all through their history of killing the prophets. We know that Isaiah was killed, Jeremiah, others. They were mistreated. They were abused. They were, in a way, the prophets, the servants of God were somehow suffering servants. They were a little bit of a precursor or a type of the final servant that would come. That is the servant that came to give his life a ransom. Jesus Christ. So as the history would flow, there would be this great abuse on the part of these people. And so they would, would uh, reek up to themselves constantly the wrath of God. The judgment of God. Generations would come and go. The prophets would be ignored. The prophets would be abused. The prophets would be killed. The, prophet, the, the law of God would be twisted and, and would be perverted. And on and on, all this abuse had taken place. And Jesus then, according to the parable here, says the father says, I think I will send my son. And so he sends his son saying they will respect him. He was certainly worthy of respect. You would think someone that fulfilled every jot and tittle of the Old Testament would have some respect, some honor. But the son, and it's interesting, he calls him the beloved son. And there's no mistake who Jesus is referencing here. He's referencing His own mission as He comes from the Father as one that is being sent to be their Savior. 
He sends the, God sends the Son, sends the, the Son to earth to do. Jesus claimed His whole ministry that He was doing the works of His Father. He had come from His Father. He was doing nothing except the Father, what the Father had told Him. And He couldn't do anything unless the Father enabled Him to do it. It was always powerful. It was always God's work in Christ on earth that was the manifestation. But no respect at all. In fact, He was despised and rejected and they took the son and it's interesting he said to them um, this is the heir and by the way Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren he is the heir of all things according to scripture and they recognize this son is the heir the tenants in the parable and so they conspired they said come that, that means let's, let's conspire, let's get together. It doesn't mean we have to go from one place to another necessarily, but come, let us get together in our story. Let's get together in our, in our efforts and we will, we will take care of him. And so they said they did. They not only beat him and killed him, but they threw him outside the vineyard. Pretty descriptive terms of what happened to Christ. His two major sufferings were, was a scourging, which the Romans put on him even long before that morning he was crucified. And then he was crucified. And the Bible tells us he was crucified outside the gate. They made sure that that ignominious crucifixion took place away from the holy land, the holy ground of the temple area and the city of David in, in the town of Jerusalem. And they put it on a, a, the backside on a, on a mountain hill. It was where the, the site of crucifixion was. This is precisely what Jesus is facing and precisely what he's going to go through. Now let's see what happens. It says, and they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And then Jesus asked, what will the owner of the vineyard do? That's a pretty good question to ask after you've told a parable like that. What do you think justice calls for? What do you think righteousness is? What do you think vindication is? What do you think equity is? What should the owner of the vineyard do? It was his property. It was his vineyard. He had asked for the fruits of the vineyard, fruitfulness. They had not produced it, and they had killed the prophets. And so now comes the son, and in the, in the parable, they kill him too. So what, what should the, the owner of the vineyard do? Well, the answer is threefold. And this is in all three of the accounts of this particular parable. He will come... He will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Think about that. He will come. He'll make an appearance. When the Lord comes, he comes for one of two reasons. He comes to save his people or he comes to condemn the wicked and to judge the world and the unrighteous. The coming of the Lord are comings for purposes. Purposes of vindication and purposes of judgment and so the coming of the lord is a coming of judgment so god promises a coming in which he will judge and this is what he will do he will destroy the tenants going to take care of all the wicked people that had rejected and that had been so malicious in what they had done to the servant and then to the son especially the son and then in the third place, he will give the vineyard to others. And then Jesus references, and I'm going to turn back and reference it just for a minute, 
the 118th Psalm where he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Do you recognize this 118th Psalm? Well, down in verse uh, 22, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the 118th Psalm. The very next verse of the Psalm starts off, Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's Hosanna. Lord, save us. And the very next verse in that passage is verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. That's the passage that the people had been quoting, shouting at the triumphal entry of Christ just a few days earlier as they welcomed him. So here comes the Lord to save us. But Jesus quotes the prior verse where here comes the Lord to judge us. And that's precisely what has happened here. The stone had been rejected. It's interesting to watch good stonemasons work. They have a big pile of stones and they're going to build a house or some structure. And they go through getting the right size stone and then sometimes they have to shape it a little and they'll take the edge of the trawl and they'll knock off a corner here and they'll, they'll fit the stone in there. And, and some ancient buildings were built so well by masonry that they didn't need a lot of adhesive a lot of mortar. The very fitting of the stones itself made a magnificent temple or a tower or a wall or some kind of wood, I mean some kind of stone structure. Well, here's the, here's the imagery here that God is building a temple. A true temple. And it's going to be built out of stones. Living stones. You and me. But it's going to have a cornerstone. And the cornerstone sets the foundation. Sitting on the corner, it shows you 90 degrees this way and 90 degrees this way. Twelve tribes of Israel and twelve apostles of the church. And they're the foundation and Christ is the cornerstone and the foundation as well. Some scholars have said that this can also refer to the keystone. As the structure is built with stones, as it comes in, in order to wedge it in perfectly to make it hold its structure, the ark, there's a keystone at the top that's shaped just right to wedge it all in so that it holds that's how significant Christ is. And yet these leaders of Israel have rejected. They've thrown out, summarily eliminated the stone that was the chosen stone, the precious stone that was to be used as the cornerstone. And so Christ Himself identifies with that. He said this is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous. It, it doesn't mean it's marvelous in a pleasant way. It means that it's a, it's a phenomenon. In fact, in one of the... In one of the texts, and I can't remember which one it was, Matthew or Luke. Let me check real quick. Yeah, yeah, in, in Luke it says, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's the same as what Mark told us. But there's a little addition here in Luke's account. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is that that is written? And then he he quotes the passage out of Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the corner. And, the, and Jesus adds, and this is the end of the parable in that account, 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on one, it will crush him. The interesting thing is that when Jesus told them in this parable what was about to happen by way of judgment, that God was going to come, He was going to destroy the tenants, the wicked leaders, and He's going to take the vineyard and give it to others. They said, surely not. (laughs) I'm not sure they believed Him enough to say in horror, oh, surely not. Let's not let that happen. I think the tone of voice was more like, you got to be kidding me. That's not going to happen. That'll never happen. And that's what Jesus is warning them about. He's telling them that He's going to do all of this. Now I'd like to submit to you as I close, just kind of an overview statement. And I want you to listen carefully because you can really misunderstand what I'm about to say. I know you can because I've been preaching this for 50 years and about half the people misunderstand it. And the only reason I don't keep preaching, quit preaching it is because I believe it is the thrust of Scripture. All through the Old Testament, God promised over and over and over with an oath that He was going to save Israel. And when Christ came and died as a suffering servant and gave His life and redeemed Israel, He saved Israel. And every Israelite that put their faith in Jesus Christ, that came to Him, that trusted Him, that believed on Him, was saved. God kept His promise. I will save Israel. He saved Israel. We find it was through a remnant. It wasn't every single solitary Israelite, but it was a healthy remnant. In fact, that's what the New Testament is. It's the story of the salvation of the remnant of Israel. How there's a a group of, of, of people who've been rescued. They are the survivors, they're called in the Old Testament. God restores the fortunes of Jacob. He restores them and you've got Christ, you've got You've got the apostles, you've got the people that believed, you've got uh, Paul, you've got the early churches, the synagogues that begin to convert over to Christ. You had believing Israel, you had God saving Israel. You understand that part so far? God kept His promise to save Israel, His people. But God promised just as vociferously, in fact more so, in the Old Testament that He was going to destroy Israel. He was going to wipe them out. He was going to cause them to be a byword among the nations. He was going to put the, pronounce the curses of Deuteronomy upon them. And He was going to scatter them. He was going to obliterate Israel for their disobedience, for their rejection of their Messiah, and for their wickedness in the earth. They had sinned against all the light and all the revelation that God had given them. They were supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. Instead, the Bible says they were the most blinded of all people. And God says, I'm going to destroy Israel. I'm going to destroy you. And the prophet, one after another, warned the people about that destruction. And 40 years, a generation, 40 years, God worked with Saul kingdom of 40 years, David's kingdom was 40 years, Solomon's was 40 years, the people wandered in the wilderness 40 years, all of those things, God works in a 40 year span of time so often, in 40 years, after Jesus spoke these words, He spoke these words in about 30 AD, 
And before that 40-year generation was over, in 70 A.D., the Lord came. And the language of that coming is so strong that some people think that was the second coming of Jesus. I don't believe that. I believe there's a final eschatological coming of Christ. But it was so profound that He came in judgment. And Jesus promised that this would happen even in the face of His trial. He said, you'll see the Son of Man coming in judgment. And Jesus came and saved Israel. But then, 40 years later, He came and kept His promise. He destroyed Israel. And I'm here to tell you, He destroyed Israel. He wiped out the priesthood. He had the temple with not one stone standing on the other. He obliterated the hill of Zion. He destroyed the, the, uh, the, the city in every way, trampled it down, turned it into a waste space. Now he used Titus the Roman emperor. He used the pagan godless Roman empire, the same people that had crucified Christ. And there's judgment waiting them, of course. But it was keeping his promise. And he scattered, he dispersed the people of Israel. And Israel has never been the same. They never rebuilt anything. They never came to any point at which they returned to the Lord in their wickedness and in their unbelief. And God destroyed them. And this is the crucial moment just before Christ is crucified that He predicts, promises, puts it in a parable as though it has already happened. As, as though the, the judgment is a foregone conclusion. God in His omniscience and in His foreknowledge knew exactly what would happen and gave every possible opportunity for Israel to repent. And some did. The believers. But a lot didn't. Many didn't. Especially this crowd right here. These chief priests. Almost all the Sanhedrin. We know of a couple of Sanhedrin uh, members that may have turned to the Lord. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. But... By and large, Israel's establishment, its religious establishment, and it said they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. This parable was not obscure. This parable did not conceal. This parable was Jesus telling them in a, in a way that would be clear to everyone. And they would understand what he was talking about. He promised the sure and certain destruction of Israel. And like most ruling elites in any government, they both fear the people and despise the people. And so because they feared the people in this instance, they didn't arrest Jesus right then. They had to conspire and work for another day or two to finally get the arrest effectuated. But they were right there to do it. Now what do we say about this? It's real simple. The Bible outlines to Jew and Greek the gospel message. And it's real simple. God comes to save. He has offered, He has presented, He has proffered, He has put upon us, He has jumped in and rescued and all we do is believe. We do like they did in the wilderness. We look at the snake, the brazen serpent upon a pole, lifted up. Jesus said, if I be lifted up. And we see and we look and we live by faith. We believe. We trust. 
and we are saved. Or we reject, we despise. We pick up the stone and we evaluate it. Oh, I don't know, Jesus was a pretty good man, but he seemed a little eccentric. I don't know if I believe much of the Bible that he had to say. And we, we look at the stone and we evaluate it with our own critical, humanistic, materialistic, atheistic way of thinking. And finally, we look at the stone and we say, you know, I don't think so. And we reject it. And that rejection is the end. That's the end for us. God's judgment is next. God is merciful. He's long-suffering. He is forbearing. He's gracious. He calls. He warns. He pleads. He points. He says, come. He promises. But there's a time when all of us, like these people, if we reject the stone, then the stone comes crushing down upon us. That's what the prophecy of Daniel was all about. The stone that was hewn out of the mountain came tumbling down the mountain and crushed the nations, crushed the kingdoms of this world. And anything that exalts its head and its mind over Christ will be crushed. There is a reality of the Scripture that is understated in our day. And that is the sure and certain judgment of a just and an almighty God upon humanity. 